Welcome to the Three Martini Lunch. Grab a stool next to Greg Corumbus of Radio America and Jim Garrity of National Review. Three Martinis coming up. Very glad you're with us for the Thursday edition of the Three Martini Lunch. We have no good martinis for you today. We don't even have any crazy martinis for you today. So buckle up. It's an all-bad martini day. Three big stories, though, that uh, we definitely need to get to. So let's start with the first one. Uh, Jim, most of us were asleep when this news came down, but I don't think a lot of us were surprised by it. Over the last few days, a number of uh, British cabinet officials uh, have resigned, saying they can no longer uh, work for Prime Minister Boris Johnson. Uh, there are a number of controversies, including his best Gavin Newsom impression of telling all of the United Kingdom to lock down for COVID and then apparently holding parties at, uh, at his office, which does not go over well. He was also very slow to respond to um, allegations of sexual impropriety by a, a prominent member of his own party. And then um, there's just you know other things that uh, did not get done. So here is Boris Johnson uh, very succinctly this morning outside of Number 10 Downing Street. It is clearly now the will of the Parliamentary Conservative Party that there should be a new leader of that party and therefore a new Prime Minister. And I've agreed with Sir Graham Brady, the chairman of our backbench MPs, that the process of choosing that new leader should begin now. And the timetable will be announced next week. And I've today appointed a cabinet to serve, as I will, until a new leader is in place. So there you go, Jim. Um, Boris Johnson is going to be gone as soon as the Tories pick a new leader. Uh, the way the system works in England is there will not be uh, a new election right away. Uh, the Tories want a five-year term. That's what every uh, parliamentary election gives you, unless you want to call a snap election, which I'm pretty sure the Conservatives don't right now, given their lack of popularity in the UK. But uh, what do you make of uh, Boris Johnson soon exiting the stage here? I think most conservatives here in the U.S., but probably quite a few over in the U.K., would look at it and at Boris Johnson's time as prime minister and see a really big disappointment. Um, the, just a general sense of how uh, frustrating and how how much potential there was. The conservatives had won this you know, really large majority in parliament on the issue of Brexit. And to Johnson's credit, he got Brexit. Brexit became reality on his watch. Um, but as my colleague, at the, in the, when I first read the morning jolt, I wasn't sure if he wanted this to be quoted. He'd mentioned this in the office slack. Uh, Dan McLaughlin had basically said, if nothing else, Boris Johnson will always have Brexit as his legacy. And he says three years later, well, Boris Johnson still has Brexit as his legacy. That <laughs> basically very little else had gotten done during his near three years as prime minister. Um, he entered office with a reputation. He was a writer for a long time, and he was known for being erudite and sophisticated and eloquent and um, uh, also having this kind of goofy self-mocking charm. Uh, we all have seen photos of him where it looks like this man has access to all the resources of the entire British government, but not a comb. Um, <laughs> and just having this kind of, you know, strange, disarming, disheveled look about him. Uh, but he was, you know, this this guy who seemed like he was the guy who was going to, you know, lead uh, the British Conservative Party and the United Kingdom into a better future. You know, look, if you're going to take power, July 2019 would be a really ominous and rough time to do so, because within a short time, the COVID-19 pandemic would start. 
shut down the world economy, put people into lock people into their houses. And Johnson's policies were even stricter than most of the blue states here in the United States of America. Uh, Johnson himself, remember, people may recall, had that really uh, severe, life-threatening run-in with COVID-19 fairly early in the pandemic. Um, and I think just, you know, if you talk to folks who are of the philosophical conservative persuasion, they make the argument that other than on other than Brexit, there were a whole bunch of issues where it was really tough to distinguish what Boris Johnson was doing from a standard issue Labor Party prime minister. Um, government grew a great deal. He was never critical of the National Health Service, uh, had an ambitious climate change plan. Um, you know, and, and there's a saying in politics that like, you know, between the uh, an authentic labor or a imitation of labor, people are going to pick the authentic labor. Um, he said, and the other thing is that, you know, he always had this kind of messy personal life, shall we say. I think his problem started with the revelation that he was having parties and gatherings in his offices when everybody else was supposed to stay locked in. Um, and it just seemed to be one issue after another. And, and I also you know, think it's worth noting here, look, every country in the world's got its own economic problems they're having because of inflation and you know disruptions to the global supply chain because of COVID, et cetera, et cetera. The United Kingdom, if you've ever been over there, almost always has had a really high uh, cost of living, particularly in the London area. Well, inflation is now 9.1% over at least in the last one, I think it was like May or June. Uh, here in the U.S., it's 8.6%. So it's even worse over there. So I think yeah, the, the personal scandals, um, the, the the general you know frustration with his leadership during the COVID years, then on top of it, the economic issues, uh, it just became too much to bear. It just became uh, just, you know, it, it's like the, the straw that broke the camel's back. So uh, a short term as prime minister, and I think a great deal of disappointment. I guess the only good news for... Uh, British conservatives is that one problem is over. Uh, now we'll see who takes over. Um, but I think they're in lousy shape. And I think there's an interesting question for the British conservatives to ask themselves. If you're not cons distinctively conservative enough, do eventually people lose interest in you and people say, eh, well, you know, we'll go with one of the more leftist parties because they're authentic as opposed to you. Yeah, it's fascinating to watch. There have been some special elections uh, for, for parliament, and uh, it kind of looks like some of these districts we've been seeing that are normally Democratic and Republicans are picking them up. It's going the opposite way for the conservatives in the UK right now. So, uh, yeah, you're right. Boris Johnson came in in the summer of 19. Uh, he called for those snap elections. You might remember the Love Actually style uh, Brexit campaign that, that got mm -hmm. the conservatives that uh, great ruling majority. Um, so, they don't have to have another election till the end of 2024. And given the way things are right now, they probably won't want to unless things turn around pretty quickly. Uh, I have no idea who's on the bench for the UK uh, in terms of who could who could come up next. But uh, uh, hopefully it does at least give them a chance for a clean slate. Uh, Jim, as much as this was a unfulfilled potential, I think you still have to say he was more effective than Theresa May, who spent three years <laughs> dealing with Brexit. And I don't think she really believed in it. She was, always seemed to be either watering it down or trying to get people to change their mind on it. And, uh, of course, that's what got David Cameron to, to quit as well. So of the past three conservative prime ministers, that one accomplishment might be the most significant of all three, although I might have to dig in a little bit more on Cameron. But it totally engulfed Theresa May. So as much as Boris Johnson could have gotten done, he still got done more than his predecessors. Better than Theresa May, 
is really not a strikingly <laughs> high bar you have to clear. Uh, it's interesting to listen to some of my colleagues who either are British or you know spend a lot of time living over there in Great Britain um, and their opinions on British politics. And if you think you know, the average conservative is dissatisfied with a typical Republican leader, uh, listen to an actual British conservative talking about uh, conservative leaders. They were uh, unimpressed, you know, frustrated with with Boris Johnson, uh, had no faith in Theresa May whatsoever, and increasingly exasperated with David Cameron. Which then gets into the question of, well, was the last good one John Major? And at which point you'll hear a lot of people say, no, no, no. So honest to goodness, there are a lot of conserv- there are conservatives I know who would argue the last good prime minister was Maggie Thatcher. Well, Maggie, Greg, they'd be like us complaining. The last good president was Ronald Reagan. <laughs> Amazing parallel there. I'd be but, curious about what percentage of our listeners are like, but the last good president was Ronald Reagan. Why would you say that? So, we were so spoiled when we were kids, right? I mean, Maggie yeah, Thatcher and yeah. Ronald Reagan at the same time. I mean, that was like a superpowers dream team politically, uh, fighting against the commies and just uh, you know promoting freedom at home. Uh, growing economies. I still remember Margaret Thatcher's uh, you would rather the poor be poorer than the rich be richer speech on the, the floor of the uh, House of Commons. She was just phenomenal. She will always be number one. I can't even imagine somebody else being a better conservative prime minister than her in our lifetimes, but you never know. Uh, yeah, I think a lot of people consider John Major to be the George H.W. Bush to Margaret Thatcher's Reagan. So I, I think a there lot are of some interesting parallels there. Yes. <laughs> that, uh... But, you know, uh, look, speaking of people who are really tired of dealing with the British, in the John Adams miniseries on HBO, there's a scene of George Washington and John Adams looking out of the what's soon going to be the White House. Um, and they see a crowd of protesters, people denouncing them, people utterly new Americans fed up with their president. And I'm looking at the screen and saying, God, George Washington and John Adams, folks, you don't know how good you've got it. <laughs> you don't know how much worse it's going to get from here on out. Well, yeah, Adams especially with the Alien and Sedition Acts. But uh, anyway, the history lesson will pause there as we go to um, to talk about the X-Chair. Jim, a lot of big news today. Not a lot of it good, but uh, you get to at least deal with it all in the comfort of your X-Chair. Yes, many of us spend more time every day in our office chair than in our cars or in our beds. And that's why it's so important to invest in the right chair to spend those hours with the right level of support and comfort to get the most productivity out of your day. X-Chair has made my time at my desk not only more productive, but it's my favorite place to sit for any reason. Not only does X-Chair's patented dynamic varial lumbar, or DVL, offer the ultimate customized support, but my X-Chair can give me a massage or heat up or cool down. And now, thanks to X-Chair's new FS360 armrests, I can adjust my armrest to the perfect position. All of these unique X-Chair features help the hours at my desk fly by in complete comfort, and that's why I love my X-Chair. Now, if you've been hearing us talk about the X-Chair and how much Jim loves it in his home office, now is the time to, to pull the trigger on this because X-Chair prices are going to increase on Monday, July 11th, but you still have time to get an X-Chair at the current price, so shop now and beat the price increase. Go to xchairmartini.com now. That's the letter X chair m-a-r-t-i-n-i dot com or call 1-844-4x-chair x-chair has a 30-day guarantee of complete comfort and you can finance your purchase for as little as 30 dollars per month one more time x-chair martini.com 
Former Trump White House official Brooke Rollins explains how she and other conservatives are preparing to help the next Republican president advance their agenda and successfully fight the bureaucracy. I'm Bill Walton. On the latest edition of The Bill Walton Show, Rollins also explains how President Trump was able to accomplish so much despite the government working against him and how getting the right congressional staffers is vital. Follow The Bill Walton Show at Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Jim, I realized I should have ended our George Washington, John Adams uh, uh, bit there by saying, uh, in the words of King George III in Hamilton, John Adams, good luck. So, <laughs> yeah, definite drop off there. But uh, anyway, let's talk about the current president, which is certainly a drop off from just about everyone. Uh, and, you know, he keeps trying to blame everyone but himself for the high gas prices and you know, it's uh, Putin's tax hike, as he called it yesterday on the road. And then he's blaming gas station owners and big oil. And pretty soon he's just going to blame everybody, uh, I think, except himself. But his uh, his one trick uh, to try to bring down the gas prices seems to be draining the Strategic Petroleum Reserve, which he's doing at a uh, dangerous clip right now. But you'd think, Jim, that that oil would be actually used to our benefit but no. Reuters, more than 5 million barrels of oil that were part of a historic U.S. emergency reserves release to lower domestic fuel prices were exported to Europe and Asia last month, according to data and sources, even as U.S. gasoline and diesel prices hit record highs. The export of crude and fuel is blunting the impact of the moves by President Biden to lower record pump prices. Biden on Saturday renewed a call for gasoline suppliers to cut their prices. About 1 million barrels per day is being released from the Strategic Petroleum Reserve through October. The flow is draining the SPR, which last month fell to the lowest since 1986. And, of course, uh, U.S. crude futures are still north of $100 per barrel and gasoline and diesel prices above $5 a gallon still in uh, much of the nation, certainly for diesel prices. Here in Northern Virginia, I think they're high fours right now, but they are down a little bit from the record highs. But, uh, Jim, some of this oil went to China. Other chunks of it went to uh, to Europe. And so uh, for some reason, uh, Biden keeps saying he's doing everything he can to you know increase supply and bring down prices. But every time we look at the facts, that doesn't seem to be the case. Everything we can except for expanding refineries. Uh, look, you do not take it directly from the oil derrick into your car. Uh, it is indeed true that the gas prices have come down a bit over the last three weeks. It was mid-June when they, the national average price per gallon for regular cracked $5. It was 501 was the peak. Uh, as of this morning, according to AAA, the national average is 475. So we've come down about a quarter. Uh, so on, on paper, that would be good news. I think most people look at paying 475 compared to paying five bucks a gallon and don't feel like it's really that much of an improvement. Uh, they, it helps, it's better, but it's you know a fairly small uh, reduction. You're you're still you know paying a lot when you decide to fill up your tank. And my suspicion is is that we probably reached our driving peak in mid June, and it's been slowly, slightly declining the amount people drive. Also, by the way, as prices get higher. Maybe some people cancel those road trips. People cancel those family vacations and decide to stay closer to home because they understand the cost of the trip is going to start becoming prohibited. Um, once again, I, I actually, the, one of the, the things that I think 
probably ought to be considered in the aftermath of this particular gas and energy crisis is, does it really do us that much good to have a strategic supply of crude oil if we don't have enough refineries? Now, as you've heard me rant about on this podcast several times, since before the pandemic, six fairly significantly sized U.S. oil refineries have shut down. Uh, one of them in Philadelphia, which was doing, I think, like 350,000 barrels a day. Uh, and another one in Texas, which is about the same amount, is supposed to shut down later this year. Um, so it's going to get worse before it gets better. Also, I believe there was a proposal for one in the Rios Virgin Islands, which will at least be close, you know, to closer to us than some of these other ones. But uh, that has been either slowed or stymied by the Biden administration. It doesn't do you any good to have lots and lots of crude oil if your car runs on refined gasoline. And I believe refinery capacities are up in the high 90 some percent. Um, in some cases, I think they're hitting records. Look, it doesn't do any good. So the idea, oh, well, you know, the, the price is down a quarter. We can credit it to the Strategic Petroleum Reserve uh, releases. No, no, it's really not. I think it's much more demand focused. And then the second thing is, is that uh, if you're going to have it, would you? The, the point of this is to increase the amount of domestic refined gasoline that people can put into their cars. Higher supply will bring down prices. That's not what's happening because you have to send that crude oil overseas to have it refined. <laughs> wow. Wow, wow, wow. We seem to be in pretty good shape a year and a half ago, though. I'm not sure why uh, all of this uh, Amazing. Yeah, it's just amazing how it just happened. Yeah, it's just curiouser and curiouser. But, uh, yeah, I'm sure Biden's about to take credit for the small drop that we've had. But since it's still over four and a half dollars a gallon here by a lot and uh, in some places still over five dollars, he's probably not feeling too comfortable doing that quite yet. But, uh, you know, it's never his fault when it goes up, but I'm sure he'll try to take credit when it goes down. All right. Uh, speaking of Biden, uh, he has uh, still said he's planning to run for re-election. We'll see about that. But uh, nonetheless, we want a very smooth and well-organized uh, 2024 election. And so um, we are sponsored in part today by the Presidential Election Project. Imagine a scenario in 2024 that is similar to 2020 with a lot of questions about irregularities in votes, maybe even debates and recounts of votes in key states. Except this time, it wouldn't be Mike Pence. It would be Vice President Kamala Harris, who would be urged to interpret her role in the process as one where she has the right to determine which electoral votes count. And why? Because the Electoral Count Act just isn't specific enough. The Presidential Election Project wants to see this change. Go to presidentialelectionproject.com now. Sign up to get updates and learn more about this very important procedural ceremony and what steps Congress is taking to reform and clarify our electoral process. The project urges you to visit presidentialelectionproject.com and again, sign up to get updates so that by 2024, there's no question that Vice President Harris will not have the power to overturn any results. presidentialelectionproject.com well, Jim, on to our third and final bad martini now, and it's a double-fisted one coming from China. Not only are we uh, sending oil in their direction, uh, intelligence from the U.S. and the U.K. Uh, is suggesting that China is up to no good on a number of fronts, first of all involving Taiwan and also our elections. This is from Ken Delanian over at NBC News. Speaking alongside his British counterpart in London, FBI Director Christopher Wray issued his starkest warning yet about the national security threat to the West from China, even as intelligence officials in Washington released a report about Beijing's efforts to influence state and local politics in the U.S. 
in a first-ever joint appearance Wednesday with the director of Britain's MI5, the UK's domestic intelligence agency. Ray raised the possibility that China might be inching closer to invading Taiwan, noting that Beijing has been taking steps to shield its economy from sanctions that would come after such a move. Suggests maybe they've been watching what happened with Russia and its economy, so they're trying to take preventative uh, measures now. We'll see if that uh, actually happens and if they actually invade soon. But also, they've decided that Washington is a waste of time. (laughs) I think some Americans might actually agree with them on that. Uh, So the way they're trying to influence uh, people here in the United States is by focusing on people at the state and local level. Uh, A 2019 study conducted by a Chinese university and a Chinese community party, that might be, shouldn't be communist, maybe, think tank, analyzed and ranked each of the 50 U.S. governors based on whether their attitudes toward China are considered friendly, hardline, or ambiguous. The study also included their ages, genders, political affiliations, work histories, and states by economic size, geographic location, and level of trade with China. Jim, I assume the title of that report is the full Swalwell. Um, uh, so uh, <laughs> how do we assess these two stories? Well, the curious thing is you say, oh, you know, China's doing this in part because the national politics are getting more hostile to China. So who are the pro-China voices who are left? Who are the ones who are telling us that, oh, no, no, it may seem like things are bad, but with the you know genocide uh, and threatening of Taiwan, and unfair trade practices and abuse of human rights and takeover of Hong Kong. And oh, by the way, that total refusal to cooperate with the investigation into the COVID-19 virus, which as we all know, came from the Wuhan Institute of Virology. No, I don't know that for certain. No one knows that for certain, but we have our suspicions. Uh, who looks at all that and says, nah, we can still be buddies with these guys. They're cool. I, I, don't, I, I do note that there are certain uh, Business executives who seem to focus on the value of China as an export market to the exclusion of all other issues and values, including, like I said, slave labor and ongoing genocide. Um, I know that many governors of agriculturally heavy states have always enjoyed access to the Chinese market and usually can be counted on to focus on that and downplay our other concerns with China. But by and large, I think, you know, I think one of the significant long term consequences of You could argue the Trump years. I think you can certainly say the COVID-19 pandemic was a big factor in this. And you could point to all of these other confluence of issues that basically said, made this this argument of, oh, the more we engage with China, the better it'll be. The more we'll spread their values to them. And then when you see uh, NBA arenas, you know, taking down, you know, signs that say Google Uyghur, you know, and basically uh, the NBA and other corporate Americans uh, forces being terrified of criticizing China in any way. I think it's more likely that we've become more like them than the idea that we have been spreading our values to China. So in, in all of that, it, it probably isn't surprising that China would be then saying, all right, well, who's left to influence? Who, who's out there who's still willing to be on our side. And in some ways, that's actually kind of an optimistic or good point of this. The problem is, I, I kind of wonder if some of this also consequence of the quote unquote Russiagate scandal, where, you know, even though the uh, ties of Donald Trump to Russia and Vladimir Putin were wildly overtyped, there's no getting around it. The Internet Research Agency based in St. Petersburg was attempting to influence the 2016 election. Some of their messages were very pro-Trump or severely anti-Hillary, but I think it's more likely that the Russian agenda is that they want Americans at each other's throats. The more divided we are, the less likely we are to be a, a hindrance to Russia and its ambitions. 
I wonder how many other countries looked at that and said, well, wait a minute, if they can do that to influence the American elections, why can't we? In fact, there have been some reports of China, and I believe Iran also. Generally, their efforts were not as sophisticated or you know, far-ranging as Russia's were. Um, but I, maybe this was inevitable that other countries would look at the U.S. elections process and say, hey, there's all kinds of stuff you can put on social media. Nobody ever checks this stuff out. We can put our propaganda out there. We can back whichever candidate we want. Hopefully, neither candidate is seen as good from China's perspective, just as I don't want either China to be uh, either candidate to be seen as good from Vladimir Putin's perspective. But I think this is I'm glad that the FBI is keeping an eye on this. And I think it's something that responsible citizens should be looking for. If you find something on the Internet that says that other guy is bad, uh, check it out. Make sure you're not being used by foreign intelligence. And I think, you know, I wrote a long report on this, was able to present it to some authorities over in Austria and the uh, European Security Council's just trying to make the argument that, like in the end, a discerning public is our best weapon against foreign disinformation efforts. And uh, it sounds like this is not just a Russian thing anymore. Well, uh, Jim, hopefully we can have a good martini tomorrow. It'd be kind of sad to not have a good martini on a Friday, but uh, we'll, we'll see what the news cycle dishes up for us then. Listeners, thank you for joining us for Thursday's daily serving of depression. <laughs> Hope you're doing okay. Don't drink any hemlock. Jim Garrity, National Review. I'm Greg Columbus of Radio America. Thanks for being with us today. Do subscribe to the podcast if you don't already and tell a friend about us as well. Also, thank you so much for your five-star ratings and your kind reviews. Please keep those coming. Get us on your home devices. All you have to say is play 3 Martini Lunch Podcast. And follow us on Twitter. He's at Jim Garrity. I'm at Dateline underscore DC. Have a great Thursday. And please join us on Friday for the next 3 Martini Lunch. Anti-human trafficking warrior Rossi Orozco joins me to explain how open borders are leading to a huge increase in human trafficking into our country and the horrific sexual exploitation of women, girls, and boys. I'm Sarah Carter. On the latest Sarah Carter Show, Rossi will explain how the trafficking process works and how big of a business it is for the cartels. It's a tough story that we all need to know. Follow the Sarah Carter Show at Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.